On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I preferred yo-yos. I had my name uh, carved into my yo-yo by a Filipino yo-yo master who came through our tiny area of Albany, New York. And that was one of the early thrills of my life. He carved in my nickname, which I will never reveal to you, even in the event of torture. I did have a nickname. Oh, tell us. No! (laughs) Does Jahanara know your nickname? She might very well. And here's Dadadada. She's looking for something. I'm just trying to see if you have charge on there. Hi, Ja. Hi, Bethany. Do you know Wavy's nickname? Yes, I do. Don't tell her. I'm just telling her that I know it. She's sworn to secrecy. Will you ever reveal it? No. (laughs) Will you, Wavy? No. No, somebody can research it to find out, I guess. If they found somebody from my ancient past and would let it slip. Mason Riggin? Mason would definitely know if you could find Mason Riggin, I would reveal it. (laughs) Did I track down Wavy's childhood cowboy friend Mason Riggin, who we learned about in episode two? But more importantly, in this two-year production process, did I discover Wavy's super secret childhood nickname? Stay tuned until the end of this episode to find out. Do you want to take us back in time to the hog farm going to Sweden going in back, 1972? Back, back. It seems it was almost yesterday. Welcome to American Prankster, the rivetingly incredible, historically fascinating life story of Wavy Gravy, original beatnik, hippie icon, comedy pioneer, and pioneering activist who uses humor as a weapon. Were you in a fish costume? And we were just our hippie self. I was just an old hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Probably uh, had day glow clothes and all that kind of stuff. Of course, we had appropriate costumes, but we were either walking in front or behind the whale. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, Wavy gets into his legacies, the projects he's most proud of for their positive impact on everyone, everywhere. For 11 days in June 1972, Stockholm was a magnet for everyone concerned with the environment. Now let's go back in time to 1972. Wavy and the Hog Farm's psychedelic Silk Road trip is wrapped. Second-generation hog farmers are being born, and the largest mammal on Earth is in jeopardy. 1,200 official delegates from 113 nations were in Stockholm for the first international conference on the human environment. Amplifying the first-ever international conference on the environment. The first one, you guys. We were sent to Sweden by Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog. Wavy's friend, writer Stuart Brand, was part of Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters. We mentioned him in the Woodstock Unicorn episode. He was part of the scientific legal LSD studies in the early 1960s at Stanford University and famous for editing the Whole Earth Catalog, a counterculture magazine and catalog focused on product reviews and published between 1968 and 1998. On the plane was the great poet Michael McClure. 
Writer Michael McClure was part of the Beat Generation writer clique with Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac in San Francisco in the 1950s. And there was Margaret Mead. She was a sweet old dad. Margaret Mead was an American cultural anthropologist whose reports on South Asian and South Pacific sexual philosophy influenced the 1960s sexual revolution. Who looked at me and said, Oh, the hog farm. You're nothing new if you never heard of the Mayflower Compact. The Mayflower Compact was the first governing document of the Plymouth Colony and was written by the male passengers of the Mayflower, which was the first boat of English Puritan settlers to the U.S. in 1620. There was a monstrous packet of indigenous element, Native Americans. Some were poets and uh, others were just wise guys. I mean, guru types. International panels of speakers debated environmental questions on everything from ecocide to the politics of pollution. We set up this whole scene outside of Stockholm to embrace all these hippies that were going to come. And then some smart-ass Swede got the idea, if they got long hair, don't let them come to Sweden. And so there was just us and a bunch of short-haired, not very conscious Swedes that we were obliged to entertain. And But we did have, you know, Margaret Mead to fall back on. And, oh, yes. And then we were alerted that there were going to be a whole segue into the demise of the blue whale. The blue whale is the largest animal ever known to have existed. They live for 80 to 90 years, and fun fact, scientists determine their age by studying their earwax. Blue whales were hunted to near extinction, and today they are on the U.S. endangered species list. And so it came to pass that we had the bus floated over there by Stuart Brandt. And we took that bus and covered it with black plastic and turned it into a whale. And it squirted water out the roof. And we had recordings of whales singing. And we just drove that sucker into downtown Stockholm during rush hour and got our picture in the paper of every newspaper in Scandinavia and Europe. And then from there to the United States of America with our wonderful whale. It was quite glorious. <laughs> and of course, we had the band, the Holy Modal Rounders. They uh, marched in front of the whale and we marched behind the whale. And like I say, we made the pretty much front page of every newspaper on the planet. Our message was to save the blue whale. And I think we did that. Of all the accomplishments of the hog farm over the decades, that was probably the capper because of the mass media caused the saving of the blue whale. Strange but true, it came to pass. They stopped killing them. Incredible! Well, the fact that it made the front page of every newspaper in the world That was amazing. The New York Times, June 8th, 1972. The crusade for a resolution drew an oddly assorted group of environmental protectors out into the Swedish countryside last night to hear the lugubrious cries of whales across the pine-studded landscape. The group included United States government representatives, and their host was the Hog Farm Commune from New Mexico. The whale cries were generated both from tape recordings and by human imitation at a demonstration last night that brought conference officials and delegates to the Hog Farm Commune's encampment on the city outskirts. 
The Hog Farm is a traveling group of American youths who live in buses. We actually read a, a proclamation to Maurice Strong, who was the head of the UN, about the hunting and killing of these lovely black whales. Here's Maurice Strong, Undersecretary General of the UN in 1972. I think the lasting message of the Stockholm Conference will be the realization that man has come to one of those seminal points in his history where his own activities are the principal determinants of his own future. And we got so much media from that that it actually worked. They had, oh God, everybody signed petitions and stuff, and they had to stop hunting and killing these animals. It was quite a deal of all the things we ever did. That was probably the most amazing. A few days later, the visitors were gone. But for many people, Stockholm will always be connected with the first international attempt to do something about environmental problems. Basic human needs, basic human deeds, doing what comes naturally. So when I set out to produce Wavy's Life Story podcast, I thought with a lot of editing, 10 episodes would be enough. I was wrong. Like the Spinal Tap amp, this one goes to 11. Tell me about the mutant sponges. I was a late joiner, but I was happy to be a, a member of the mutant sponges. They were very good at going over the wall of the Lawrence Livermore weapons lab. We would use a ladder and a blanket, so you could throw the blanket over the barbed wire and come down on the other side. And the sponge costume was really wonderful, because if you were knocked over, you would just boing, bounce right back up again. I had several occasions where I was a mutant sponge and was knocked over and bounced up again and but the police more enjoyed busting Santa Claus than anybody else. I asked Wavy what his parents thought about his unconventional life. My dad, he just shuddered every time I made headlines because they'd say I was Hugh Romney and so was he. So the architects at the office would bother him. <laughs> oh Hugh, we see you've been up to some shenanigans. Got arrested again. And that was actually funny for me and difficult for him. But uh, he rode over and he was okay. He got used to it. But he was a, a wonderful architect. And he designed the kitchen at Camp Winter Rainbow, which is a lovely little structure. So he actually liked what you were doing? Uh, maybe. <laughs> he, he didn't have any choice, really. We were doing it no matter what. Welcome to the labyrinth at Camp Winter Rainbow. I titled this episode The Labyrinth because, according to Hopi lore, labyrinths are the master plan for the universe. Now, whenever I walk in a labyrinth, I feel a deep sense of peace, unarguably a feeling most living beings fancy. So, welcome to the labyrinth. Okay, everybody. Sit up straight. Breathing in. We calm our body. Deep breath in. Breathing out, we smile. Breathing in this supreme moment. Breathing out, we know it's a wonderful moment. Give it to me. Yes, 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 yes. 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 
Let's see, one thing led to another. I went to live with the Hopi Indians. When is this, in the 60s? And, yeah, after all that, I just needed a break. The after all that Wavy's referring to is after his stand-up comedy explosion with his touring show, Hugh Romney and His Electric Toothpick, when Lenny Bruce was his comedy manager in L.A., around 1965-66. can hit the road for Hoda Villa. Hoda Villa is a census-designated place on the Hopi Reservation in Navajo County, Arizona. And that's where I ran into John Minolanska, who took me to the Sun Temple in Mesa Verde, and I saw this uh, shape. It enamored me. Do I have it? Wavy looks around his toy-covered desk yeah. and finds his Camp Winter Rainbow pendant. On one side is the clown jester of Native people that has this hump on his back which is filled with grain. And he's the humpback flute player, actually. Wavy's describing Coco Pele, a Southwest Native American fertility and agriculture deity, master braider, and trickster god, representing the spirit of music throughout Mesoamerica and part of Camp Winter Rainbow's ethos since the 1970s. And on the other side is this shape that I saw at the Sun Temple in Mesa Verde. Mesa Verde, now a national park in Colorado, is the location of spectacular ancient cliff dwellings and archaeological sites of the ancestral Pueblo people of the American Southwest. And I said to Mina Lanska, who was an elder, what's that? And she said, oh, wavy gravy, that's just the master plan of the universe. And I said, could I borrow your pencil, please? And I uh, wrote it down and traveled with it and recreated it everywhere I went. If I would be on a beach, I would grab a stick and draw it or take seashells and make it, and then I would walk it and walk inside it. And it's called the Seven Circuit Unicursal Cretan Labyrinth. Unicursal Cretan Labyrinth. Unicursal means relating to or denoting a curve or surface that is closed and can be drawn or swept out in a single movement. Cretan refers to the Mediterranean island of Crete, where mythic Theseus battled the Minotaur, who lived in the center of the labyrinth. This is at the Sun Temple in Mesa Verde. It was in Crete and all over the world. Now, there are two kinds of labyrinths, the multicursal and the unicursal. Multicursal labyrinths are known as mazes, like the 1980s movie Labyrinth. Now, Wavy's talking about the unicursal labyrinth, which has one way in, same way out. Unicursal Cretan labyrinths are the earliest labyrinth design and have been carved on rocks and produced full size throughout the world for thousands of years. We uh, built one at uh, Camp Winter Rainbow in the early days. Camp Winter Rainbow in Northern California is Wavy's Circus and Performing Arts summer camp where I was fortunate enough to spend my childhood, teen, and many adult summers. It's the best. The Ute staff brought rocks up from the creek and I had taken and drawn this thing out with blue cornmeal and we put the rocks on top of the cornmeal spread sand on the floor of the thing and it's uh, still there to this day and every year we get more rocks and new sand and we keep reoccurring it and kids walk it and we bless them with sage and prayers and they they go inside with each step as a prayer for peace on the planet and they say a big prayer in the center and the kids that are moving on and it's their last time at camp they go inside and we do a ceremony for them and they each pick a crystal and take it out and take it home and it's a thing of beauty and wonder 
And they're starting to build these labyrinths by hospitals because they discover that when patients walk the labyrinth, they heal faster. So labyrinths are popping up all over the place. There's a plan for the universe. Exactly. It is what it is. So it's the mid to late 1970s, and Wavy and the Hog Farm, now with kids, have settled into a communal house in Berkeley, California, perhaps enjoying products introduced in the late 1970s, like the Post-it note, Bubblicious Gum, and Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. He's learning spelling with Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. And Wavy embarked on, as he says, and as is the title of his memoir, Doing Something Good for a Change. Tell me about founding Camp Winterimbo. Oh, that was when children arrived. (laughs) We had to have something to do with them. Here's Wavy's son, Jordan, who we met in the last episode. One of the reasons that Camp Winterimbo became was that um, Wavy had the job of taking these 13, 14, 13, 10, 12, 13 kids out of the house for a while. He had the job of sucking up all the children out of the house and finding something to go do with them. You know, we would head out in a vehicle and he would just give the adults at Woolsey Street or Henry Street some time to like detox and have some adult time and have some quiet time in the house. And we would do crazy things. We would break into swimming pools. We would play in elevators and skyscrapers. We would like go to beaches. I didn't realize until later what he was doing, which was like letting the adults rest. I thought it was always just, yay, life is amazing, road trip. But you know, it would be one adult, just wavy and like just a ton of kids, just a whole bundle of kids. One of the things we would do regularly would be to break into the Claremont Hotel swimming pool. The Claremont Club and Spa Hotel, founded in 1915, is the fanciest hotel in Oakland, California. You would roll up in numbers and just act like you were meant to be there. We are meant to be there. We are insulin suits. We have towels. We're swimming. We did not have a hotel room at the Claremont. We didn't have anything. We would just we would just roll in and just all jump into the swimming pool because we carried white towels with us. <laughs> you know, it's just that like it's that improvisational clown boldness that would like get us into these awesome situations. That's what I remember. Camp Winter Rainbow is a circus and performing arts camp that we put together to uh, teach kids juggling and tightrope and trapeze and unicycling and all that kind of stuff. Timing and balance. What was camp about? It was survival in the 21st century or how to duck with a sense of humor, which has certainly stood them in good stead as they evolved into uh, humans living in uh, perilous times. You could not beat learning to duck. (laughs) As a Camp Winter Rainbow alum since 1979, I can confirm that learning to duck with a sense of humor has been invaluable. And I wish every weirdo artsy kid could go to Camp Winter Rainbow and that every camp and school taught Wavy's brand of kindness, joy, fun, and peace. Here's Wavy's wife, Jahanara, on her camp roots. I am from Minnesota, and my parents ran a summer resort with a program for kids. You know, the parents would go out fishing in the lake in Minnesota, and I would be sent off with the person that took care of the children and go on the kids' thing. And it was really a, a rather nice situation, and I got, you know, very friendly with how it was to be with a bunch of kids that went around from place to place while my parents went off and did other things when I was a child. And then I was sent to a kids' camp for a month. Probably it better remain nameless. 
But whatever the name of that camp is, Camp Winter Rainbow is designed to be the opposite of that. And I had a horrible time. And I remember all of the things that made it horrible for me. And we did it differently at Camp Winter Rainbow. And the things I remember are things like we had to write a letter home every day. And I wasn't allowed to say anything. They they watched me write the letter and they (laughs) read it. And if I said, please come and get me, help me, help me. You know, they said, start again. Are you having anything nice? We'll write that down, you know. So I couldn't ever say help. And nobody was hurting me. Nothing was happening to me that was dangerous or terrible. I just hated it. And the fact that I couldn't say help freaked me out. And that was my experience at camp. You know, I put too much butter on my plate and I didn't need it. So I had to eat the butter with a spoon until it was gone while all the other kids made fun of me. You know, no. There's just certain freedoms of respect for a child's so personal integrity and ability to guide their own ship, which you can't do all together when it's a child. There's got to be a boss of me, you know. But there's a certain kindness and willingness to listen and giving the children as much of a chance to guide their own ship as is safe that Camp Winter Rainbow has instilled as a priority. I was wired into doing circus and performing arts for grown-ups with my partner at the time, a guy named Surya Singer, who was also a director of shows and, you know, highly skilled in the theatrical vector. And the two of us, from a, a big Sufi meeting, segued out. Sufism is a mystical, spiritual practice of Islam, best known for its whirling dervish dancers, and became popular with hippies after they started adventuring east on the Silk Road. Wavy's wife, Jahanara, is a low-key practicing Sufi. Back to Wavy on meeting his first Camp Winter Rainbow partner, Syria Singer, who I remember for my first couple years at camp. How did you meet Syria Singer? Oh, God, he was just popped up. He was one of the Sufi guys. He was involved in building the hermitages at the Lama Foundation. They were in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Pretty awesome. They had this dome, this big, ginormous geodesic dome with a window that you could look out the rear window of the dome. And there was the southwest. There was a big slope out the window. And out the window, if you just looked, it was as far as you could see. Surya built a lot of the little hermitages where they would go and meditate and stuff. We kind of drove the hermits bananas because, like, on Thanksgiving, we cooked a turkey and they couldn't handle it. And they'd smell that turkey and they would lose their desire to meditate. All they wanted to do was eat our turkey. And so eventually we got kicked out. Oh, this is a classic hippie story. Beatnik activist hippie clown meets Sufi theater circus carpenter at a New Mexico meditation center. And after being kicked out for tempting vegetarian monks with roast turkey, starts a circus camp for hippie kids. I mean, who doesn't? I had my son, howdy do good tomahawk truck stop gravy Romney to attend to. And I said to other people who could not attend spiritual practices because they had kids, I said, well, give me your kids. And they gave me a cabin to put it all in. And eventually various grown-ups filtered down into our vector. They enjoyed interaction with short people. And that was the morning of Winter Rainbow. We were trying to, what do you call it when you try and think of stuff? Brainstorm? 
Yeah, that's it. We were not many brains, but a lot of storm. Remember, Wavy's 84 or 85 at the time of our interviews. And a lot of we, lightning. That's where it was winner, maka, winner, and then bam, rainbow, winner, rainbow. Jumped on it. Jumped on it. That was it. No question about it. Absolutely, positively, fourth street. And it was immediately uh, branded into our cerebral cortex. It was Camp Winter Rainbow. And we were given not only that one cabin, but it was in the Mendocino woodlands. There were camps. I think they were run by Unitarians. And they would rent them out. There was Camp A, B, and C. And we went from C to A. And we took A and the rest of the Sufi population. Job hired me in to take care of our son because she was a practicing Sufi and wanted to spin. Spinning and spinners are whirling dervish dancing and dancers. And you could not spin with a seven-year-old hanging on her every uh, appendage. So I was enlisted and one thing led to another which is the story of my life and times is one thing leads to another and that's how i do it uh, there's no thinking thinking gets in the way of thought old gravyism you can take that one to the bank tattoo it on visible appendage and it always rides well into the mystic we are the children of camp winter rainbow We are the ones born into the belly of the beast And if the worldwide struggle was a jigsaw puzzle We'd be the ones left holding the very last So we were flying all over the place, putting on Camp Winter Rainbows. Once a nomad, always a nomad. Despite settling down in a house, Wavy and the Hog Farm still crisscrossed America. We traveled around the country doing classes in colorful California, and then to the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of New Mexico, and then ending up at the Omega Foundation in New York State, near Woodstock. And it was kind of hilarious that we put all the teachers in an airplane and unload all the <laughs> unicycles and juggling equipment and what have you, and wherever we would stop. It was quite tedious. Tired of air hosts who just don't care yes. that you're allergic to nuts, you're throwing up your guts in a too small airplane bathroom. Ew. The airlines hated us because there's all these unicycles and juggling balls spilling all over the cargo bins. And they were just as happy as we were when we found our final resting place. <laughs> Thank God we got rid of them hippies. No, I'm not kidding. Yeah, my parents put me on a plane once with you to go to New Mexico. To so that camp in New Mexico up in Lama? At Lama, my mom put me on a plane with you and Ayat and Nirtan. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Ayat and Nirtan are old-school Camp Winter Rainbow teachers from the 1970s and 80s. Well, at Friendship Airways, we care for reals, and we'll be Here's second-generation hog farmer and fellow Winter Rainbow alum, Casper, who we met in episode 10, on adventuring with Wavy the babysitter. The best field trip ever was camp. Camp had been around for a couple years before I was old enough to go there. You're supposed to be seven or something like that, but they send you there too when you're six. I remember our ultimate field trip was the first year I went to camp was we went 
down to the farm and spend a couple weeks down at the old hog farm and outside of Santa Fe in Yano. And this is where the hog farm lived before Woodstock. And it was Lord of the Flies action down there with all the kids. It was crazy. And then we went to camp. It was the first year I ever went to camp. And it was one of those things that you'd always heard about it. You'd always heard like, oh, there's camp, camp, camp. And then you know that Wavy would be gone all, you know, for a couple weeks or something like that during the summer. And then when you got to do it, it was just like, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever done in my life. The first person that I saw at camp was Wavy and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to juggle. So he said, if you learn how to juggle, I'll buy you juggling balls. So I learned how to juggle and he was true to his word. He bought me juggling. He bought my first set of juggling balls. I dropped one of them in the house. <laughs> I took them everywhere. So those were the best field trips because we'd be gone for weeks and weeks, whether it was Mendocino, Woodlands, or New Mexico, or when we bought our property in Laytonville. So Wavy's doing exactly what he did with a hog farm in Sunland and on the road. As Laura Foster Corbin said in episode six, quote, making fun things for everyone to do. But now that the hog farm has kids, instead of producing his party show events at colleges for adults, Wavy and the hog farm make their scene kid-friendly and call it Camp Win a Rainbow. I think that my greatest legacy are the kids that come out of camp. It is all these kids that have come out of Camp Winter Rainbow through the years that are universal human beings that are able, with their consciousness, to change the world. I wanted to make this podcast after hearing Mr. Rogers' podcast, Finding Fred, because like Mr. Rogers, Wavy is unique and magical, naturally relating to kids, because he has retained his sense of wonder. And I wish all humans could hold onto wonder. We play for children who sneak popsicles after supper, and we play for those who stare at photographers from behind barbed wire who are born in places we wouldn't be thought dead. Also, Wavy treats kids as equals. I know because I was a kid in his space eat classes at Camp Winter Rainbow every day all summer for many years and always felt he felt that we were on the same page and that us kids' voices were funny, entertaining, and meaningful. And we pray for those who will eat anything, who aren't spoiled by anybody, who go to bed hungry and cry themselves to sleep. We pray for children. Wavy makes kids feel like people, not just kids. Here's Casper again. I love seeing Wavy with kids at camp, like in the labyrinth, or when you do morning reading every day at camp. I never miss morning reading. Morning reading at camp is Wavy's daily 20-minute show on notable birthdays, historic moments, stories, poems, etc. Birthdays today in 1756... Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Austrian music prodigy and composer, Figaro, Figaro. And I would be there with him. I think that the campers probably went through that process thinking that it was pretty boring at the time. But as they've all grown up, I think they're trying to process the fact that every day they had a mini lesson from Wade about compassion and gratitude and kindness and the rest of the world and learning about different people and cultures and art and poetry and what an amazing thing to tell somebody in 50 years you know that for 10 days you went to basically a, a half hour workshop with Wavy about his personal thoughts the authors and the and the things that really get him going and turn him on and he's trying to give that to you 
one of my favorite parts of the day was just to have that moment where you got to climb into the clown's head for a second. And only be there for a little while, you gotta get out or you get, <laughs> you get a little lost. When he really opens up in some kind of ceremonial way, whether it be morning reading or fire circle or especially the labyrinth, he's all in. It doesn't matter the audience, it's, he's all in and it's, it's important to him in a way that he wants it to be important to you. Birthdays today in 1868, Rocky Figel, Polish-born ruffian, said to be the real-life inspiration for Popeye. I am what I am. <laughs> in 1942, Kate Wolf, American folk singer, songwriter, and close friend of me and Camp Winter Rainbow. Wavy's friend Kate Wolf was a folk musician who tragically died of leukemia at age 44 and whose spirit is honored at her namesake music festival on the Hog Farm's ranch. Wavy and the Hog Farm continue their Woodstock scene of peace, love, and rock and roll to this day, putting on events at their communally owned property in Northern California. Here's Kate Wolf's most famous song that we sing at Camp Winter Rainbow. You must give yourself to love If love is what you're after Open up your hearts to the tears and laughter and give yourself to love. Give yourself to love. When we uh, found this land in Laytonville, and I remember driving into this valley surrounded by these big, beautiful oak trees that I immediately saw a circle of 17 teepees appear inside my head, and that was it. And the circus tent, a giant costume barn, and, and that's where uh, we planted Camp Winter Rainbow. So instead of us going to the kids, the kids came to us which was much less tedious. Oh my God, what a relief. After all that air travel over years, to finally be somewhere permanent. I remember when Camp moved from the Mendocino Woodlands to the Black Oak Ranch. Wavy split from his first camp partner, Syria Singer, and got a whole new crew of artist hippie counselor teachers. Unbeknownst to us kids, many of them hog farmers, merry pranksters, musicians, and part of the international cutting-edge circus and theater scene. Here's Jahanara again. Creativity being blessed, nurtured in children so that they're not all smashed down like I was in the 50s. My parents were nice people, but nobody, no children were allowed to breathe free creatively or any other way when I was a child or a teenager. It was awful. And so, you know, Camp on a Rainbow is me fighting against that. 10 or 20% of every pint of uh, Wavy Gravy ice cream went to, to the scholarship program. Wavy's referring to Ben & Jerry's Wavy Gravy ice cream, 1993 to 2001. Tell me about the Camp Winter Rainbow Scholarship Foundation. There were many things that we did to uh, enable economically challenged kids to attend camp. It certainly was available for people that could afford it, but people that couldn't, we uh, paved all kinds of ways, including scholarships. So it wasn't just rich or middle-class kids, but kids of all economic uh, ladders to be part of it. And that, that made me feel really good. Camp has always been where Wavy and Jaw walk the talk of equality activism. 
I reached out to my friend Talia Sykes, a former camper counselor, who, along with her siblings, was uplifted and transformed by Camp Winter Rainbow. Here's Talia. You might hear her dog in the background. So my mom was unavailable to take care of me when we were younger. I lived to my grandmother's place when we were six, and my grandmother was in her 70s at the time. So my older brother and sister um, took the burden and responsibilities of all the day-to-day activities. And my mother spent a lot of her time trying to figure out, you know, which organizations could help, you know, where we could go to get uh, enrichment activities. And camp was one of the many places that my mom wrote to. But long story short, when I was nine, my brother was seven and my sister was six, we went to camp. And camp has meant a lot to me. But one of the things that will always stay with me is that one of the first things you learn to do at camp is to fall for stilt walking, for aerial sports, for a lot of different things, you want to make sure to learn how to fall. What happens when you learn how to fall? You learn how, like, it's not so scary. You know, you learn to pivot. You learn to make adjustments. You learn to do all these things. And even though, you know, it may have actually been about (laughs) how to do it for stilts or for aerial sports, it really is a lesson that stayed with me, you know, 30 plus years later. So I I was a city kid and I still live in the city now, but I absolutely have a huge appreciation for and need to be near nature. But I just remember just being so fascinated because there were so many trees, like everywhere. There were streams, there was, the labyrinth didn't exist at that time, I don't think, but there were mud baths, like everywhere you went and camp smelled different. As soon as you got to about a half hour from camp, You could start rolling down your windows and just have a whiff of just nature and trees and eucalyptus and like all these amazing things that did not exist in the city. And something that was so important is there were always droughts. So we made sure to be sustainable, you know, not be a drag on the environment and the people around. All of these practices are things that I try to still on a regular basis and try to still do. Like I have I have compost worms in the middle of the city where I live. I call them some of the beings I take care of. <laughs> Just makes me very aware of the universe and the planet and you know what I want to leave behind. And it's nature and making sure that I do things in a sustainable and long-lasting matter because it's not just about me, it's about the whole universe. Aha! Sounds like the revelations of the psychedelic revolution. One thing I loved about camp, it was always a risk-free environment to try different things. And it was encouraged to try different things. Like, I always felt like, hey, I tried aerial, aerial classes for a little while and I wasn't great at it, but I loved that I was able to try, but I got to decide that for myself that I wasn't good at it. And then I wanted to try something else. And I, I always felt like I could. I never felt like there was a limitation. And that served me so much in life. And I feel like a lot of people are stuck in boxes, but I always felt like, you know, living at the hog farm and going to camp that I could try anything and anything was available to me. And having Wavy and Jaw just, they were always encouraging, like whatever it was, okay, try it. I never felt discouraged on different things and that served me so well so many years later. So Talia didn't just come to camp, but she and her family eventually became part of the Hog Farm Commune. So we'd been to camp for a few years at this point, and my grandmother was unable to take care of me, period. 
And because of the relationship that we had had, I went to live with John and Wavy and the rest of everybody in the house. By house, Talia means the Henry Street House in Berkeley, California, where Wavy and the Hog Farm moved after the Woolsey Street House. Yeah, I was about 12. That was a new and different experience, for sure. So instead of just having my grandmother and my sister and my brother, I suddenly had all these parental figures, which was awesome. I moved first, and then later my brother and sister joined. I definitely felt enriched. It was nice to have, you know, somebody who was able to physically and in all the ways take care of me and get the stuff that I needed. Um, I ended up spending a lot of time at camp still. So camp changed from just two weeks a, a year to my whole entire summer. I stayed at camp and then later I would en- I ended up working in the camp office and also in the kitchen part time, which was really good and kind of ironic because I don't actually like to cook now, but it was such a massive and amazing production to be able to help take part in feeding everybody at, at camp and living in a commune and being as a, uh, a member of camp. You always have to think beyond yourself. And like, that's one of the things that's really important to me in my life is just making sure that you look out for other people and making sure to impact your environment positively as much as possible. Every single thing that I do in every way, I'm always reminded that I'm a hog farmer, whether it's composting my scraps, caring for the feral cats, or thinking of nature and being connected to home. Those are things that stay with me forever. And wouldn't it be neat if the people that you meet had shoes upon their feet? And something to eat. And wouldn't it be fine now if all humankind had shelter? Basic human needs. Basic human deeds. Doing what comes naturally. My birthday is in September. And everybody whose birthday was during camp, they got pied in the face. And I was so sad that my birthday was never during camp because I could never get pied in the face. So (laughs) my very first birthday there, I was 13. And I said, Weavy, can you please pie me? Because I've never been pied in the face. You you would get pied with, you know, just an old aluminum tray and a whole thing of whipped cream. And people would know it was coming and then they'd act surprised and then they'd get pied in the face and everybody would sing happy birthday. And it was such a fun thing. But I really wanted to get pied. I told John, I think John told Wavy, and he didn't dismiss it. He didn't say, oh my God, that's ridiculous. He said, sure, (laughs) let's do it, boss. He also knew that I loved hot sauce. So whenever he traveled, he'd go get hot sauce from wherever it was. Trying to get something that was so hot that I couldn't eat it. And he finally found something. Like it was his quest. It was his special mission to find something that was so hot that I could not eat it. He eventually did find something. But it was like a few years later. And I just appreciate that. That, you know, he didn't like give up after two tries. He said, hey... Let's do it. Let's keep going. (laughs) And it was cool to just have somebody that you know supports you, even in little crazy things like that. Always bringing that, you know, can-do spirit that made you feel like you didn't have to have limitations. And that's the kind of person that Wavy is, like, always encouraging and always toward the fun all the time. You ready to have big fun? Give me an F. 
On the last day of every session, Wavy wakes up camp with Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner. Where'd you get the idea to raise the children up with Jimi Hendrix on the last day of camp? I don't know. It just popped into my head. It would be the Star Spangled Banner, of course. Wavy playing Jimi Hendrix on the last day of camp is not a coincidence. Jimi Hendrix played the Star Spangled Banner on the final morning of Woodstock. This is my kind of detective work. Is counterculture detective a job title? And they would rush out of their teepees and have a pillow fight during Jimi's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Only on the last day of each session of camp that that particular instance would occur. And it was a good thing. Such fun. And that was our motto toward the fun. Hey, where'd you come up with that? I don't know. Laughter is the valve on the pressure cooker of life. Either you laugh at stuff or you end with your brains or your beams on the ceiling. So I guess it came out of that somewhere. Throughout the decades, camp transformed from loose hippies throwing together a DIY scene for the counterculture kids of friends and family to an accredited camp approved of by regular people. And one of the major turning points came when Amusement Park Marine World Africa USA went out of business. Tell me about the water slide. Uh, how did that happen? Okay, this great water park was going out of business. And they were uh, donating water slides to worthy causes. And we applied for one and got it and then installed it at our little Lake Veronica. And it was amazing. Lake Veronica is named for a femme fatale movie star of the 1940s, Veronica Lake. And it was one thing to have a circus and performing arts camp. But to have a circus in performing arts camp with a 350-foot water slide into a lake made it double your pleasure and triple your fun. First, just these huge slabs were set off on the side of our lake and then raising the money to slowly but surely construct the darn thing. And it was great. You got to ride down it. Your whole life would rush before your eyes in 28 seconds. And we were afraid that... You'd be hooked on it and just wanted to do that and nothing else. But it didn't work that way. I loved it, adored it, and it was a great selling point for camp. Wavy just made the point that he and the hog farmers needed to make a living. Just how do you become self-reliant? Oh, you want a quick, easy formula, huh? I'm afraid there isn't any. Camp, although a nonprofit, was just one of their businesses. Learning to be self-reliant takes time and hard work. Weasel repair. We're out repairing weasels. Have you ever wondered what people did before answering machines? Which, for the kids out there, was an invention I remember getting for our landline telephones of the 1980s. Our answering service was called Babylon, which is a great name for a telephone answering service because people would call up and we would say Babylon. <laughs> answering machines, although invented in 1898 and automated in 1935, weren't widely available until the early 1980s. So people used an answering service like Babylon. Our motto was an elephant's memory for peanuts a day. We started out with one phone and a call director. And for $5, you could give out our number and your name. And people would call 841 and we would say... Babylon, 
This is Thessaly's line. Thessaly is not here right now, but we can take a message. And so I would take the message and put it in your box. And then you would call up and say, hello, this is Thessaly, box 300. Do I have any messages? And I would say, yes, Waldo called and said, do you have any cheeseburgers? And Waldo wants to know, do you have any extra seats on the Zeppelin? And then you would get that message and then I would stamp it delivered. And then Waldo would call and I'd say, yes, she has received your message and hopefully she will get back to you. That was essentially it. Oh my God. Time out. There you go. We took turns being operators on the answering service and a shift was like four hours. And the whole answering service was set up. We had this large porch on the house and on the porch was all the technology. Here's Jahanara. Everybody who lived in the house had to work on the answering service and it was called Babylon, which of course is the name we made up. Babylon, and we got paid, I think, 50 cents an hour for our work. We paid each other, and then the rest of it went to my father. Remember, in episode 10, we learned Johanna's dad helped the hog farm buy their first house in Berkeley. And after we had paid him off, and then we kept paying the mortgage with what we earned from the answering service. It got very elaborate, finally. We had it for a long time. I had an elephant suit, a big elephant head that I would put on. Like a knapsack on my back was 40 telephones in a fan like a Buddha or something. And I would walk down Telegraph Avenue in my elephant suit and pass out flyers suggesting that they enlist our services. An elephant's memory for peanuts a day, which was $5.00 a month, I think, which is insane. But for much more money, we would answer your phone at your house. We would get hooked up that way through technology. What a wonderful name for an answering service, Babylon. Ja had one in San Francisco called Grand Central. Whose idea was this? I had two friends, uh, David and Sandy, two gay guys that eventually Wavy Wavy married 40 years of them being together, and David was my very close friend. We met in college, and they started together an answering service in New York. That's how the idea came up to us, because it's something that a group of people can do together communally, and it paid for the house. And then we got it to pay for all kinds of things, and for food on a daily allowance, and for a while we all had gas credit cards, but then we couldn't afford that anymore. You know, we experimented with communal ways to do things. Everybody who lived here worked the answering service. So it's the late 1970s, early 80s. In 1974, women were granted the legal right to their own credit card. 1979, the Sony Walkman is released. 1980, John Lennon is murdered. Pac-Man is introduced. And Ronald Reagan is elected the U.S. president. And then, in 1981, the first cases of AIDS are diagnosed in the U.S. A mystery disease known as the gay plague has become an epidemic unprecedented in the history of American medicine. David and Sandy then, who I started an answering service with and on the Castro in San Francisco with the two of them, and neither of them got AIDS. San Francisco's Castro is one of the first gay neighborhoods in the U.S., becoming a rainbow beacon around the summer of love in 1967. We had many people on our staff. I know lots of people who died of AIDS, and 
spent their last hours with them and it was really it was just horrendous just horrendous because i was right there in the castro and everybody who worked at the answering service pretty much except me was gay so we had the answering service when aids started to happen uh harvey milk his camera shop was three doors down from where I work and he sat right outside my office on the steps. You know, hello, I'm running for supervisor and uh, I'd say hello to him every day as I walked into the office. Harvey Milk, America's first openly gay public office holder, was elected San Francisco supervisor in 1977 and in 1978 was murdered along with San Francisco Mayor George Moscone by a fellow supervisor whose lawyer later claimed the murders were due to insanity from eating Twinkies. Harvey Milk was memorialized in the Gus Van Sant film Milk. A lot of that stuff was happening right there when they shot Harvey and the mayor of San Francisco. I was in my office and everything just went mad. And I don't know how this happened. The word came, Harvey Milk had been killed, the sheriff had been killed. It just seems like instantly we abandoned the answering service. Everybody walked out in the street and walked to City Hall. Somehow we all had candles. Someone handed me a lit candle, and and there were thousands of us. I was the only person there that I knew that wasn't gay. It was powerful. Basic human needs, basic human deeds, doing what comes naturally. Down in the garden. When no one is apart, deep down in the garden, the garden of your heart. I love ping pong, by the way. We adore it at Camp Winter Rainbow. Ping pong and blockhead. We play serious, serious blockhead. And if I was in a Saber meeting and I said that, I would have to put on silly glasses. Whenever you say the S word, it's forbidden. Serious. Weasel Repair. Yes, I'm doing a, a show with Thessaly right now. Okay, bye. That was my associate, Miss Tamara Klamner, who I uh, put on shows with throughout the decades. We must have done 30 or 40 of them for Seva, where I have to go around and call up artists. It's not that hard to get them to do a performance of like one song. Proceeds would go to make blind people not bump into stuff and not be blind anymore. So it was an easy sell. So Wavy just ping-ponged from ping-pong to putting on benefit concerts for Seva, Wavy's nonprofit baby we touched upon in episode one, which transforms lives by restoring sight through cataract surgery. Here's Wavy's BFF, hog farmer and smallpox eradication participant, Dr. Larry Brilliant, on founding Seva. The Seva Foundation was created in our house in uh, Chelsea, Michigan. I was a professor at Ann Arbor. Geerge was getting her PhD. And uh, we had just come back from eradicating smallpox, along with many of the people who had worked to eradicate smallpox. By then, four or five years had passed, and we wanted to do it again. Smallpox was the first disease in history eradicated, but it had killed almost half a billion children in the 20th century. In the summer of love, smallpox killed two and a half million people. We think now in the era of COVID, what is a pandemic? When I got to see the last case of smallpox, ironically in Bangladesh, when that girl, Rahima Banu, when her, the scabs fell off and they were cooked by the hot sun, 
That was the end of an unbroken chain of transmission going back to the pharaohs. It was the first disease ever eradicated. Smallpox, believed to have existed for at least 3,000 years, was declared eradicated in 1980 by the World Health Organization. The smallpox vaccine, developed in 1796, was the world's first vaccine. And in 1967, the World Health Organization enacted an intense plan, enlisting Dr. Larry Brilliant and others to eradicate the acutely contagious disease. Smallpox is the only infectious disease to achieve eradication. My guru had told me that my job was to leave the ashram to go help work in the smallpox program. And Wavy and Jao would write us letters. We would call them all the time. Anytime we came back, we'd spend time together. And I wanted to find a way that they and my friends in the hog farm could also experience what Kirj and I experienced by being UN officials. So I thought, Maybe we could create an organization that did as much good as these UN agencies did, but allowed more people who didn't happen to have been a doctor participate. So the first people, of course, I called when I was thinking about doing this was Wavy and Ja, and they were the first volunteers. Seva was a Sanskrit word that means service to humankind, although we just focused on curable and preventable blindness in third world countries. I thought, well, good luck with that. And I went to get on this airplane. And who's on the airplane but the Grateful Dead? I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Needless to say, started out with the drummers. And Billy Kreisman and Mickey Hart were pushovers for the cause of blind people not being blind. And then Jerry was his always sweet and amiable self. And I just worked my way through it all till I came out the other end with them agreeing to do a benefit for Seva. So it was really delightful that when I landed in the Bay Area, I had them agreeing to do this show. Also, many other artists. That has been my duty, my activity, challenge, and my joy to cause people to throw cash at Seva. Five million people are not bumping into shit because of the Seva and our shows. And this pleases me extraordinarily, although I'm not supposed, I'm not in it for the buzz. I'm in it for the glory, which is another buzz, actually. Back to Dr. Larry. We gathered together so many times, and there would always be four or five doctors, later a bunch of ophthalmologists, there'd be CDC epidemiologists, there'd be professors, UN diplomats, and it was always easy to find people like that who are professional do-gooders, but it's really hard to find a clown. So while we were able to bring all these people together, it was only wavy, it was the clown, but it was the clown who every time we had a meeting, he would occupy a place in the center of the room with a table, and he would build an altar. And on the altar would be pictures of Buddha and uh, Pirvalite Khan and Neem Karoli Baba and the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, homeless people, leaders of the, any kind of activist movement of the time, Martin Luther King. And he managed to bring together all the people from all the different traditions that each one of us had been inspired by all on that one table. And there it was in the center when we were talking about how to build an eye hospital or a program that helped to end needless blindness. But also on that table, besides the Buddhas, behind the crosses, besides the images of Vishnu and Krishna, there was always a pair of Groucho Marx funny glasses with the big nose and the eyes. And Wavy insisted that there'd be one part of our religious commitment that was unusual. We would all agree that we would add to whatever articles of faith we subscribe to this one thing, that one word would be banned on penalty 
of having to wear the funny glasses. And that word was serious. Whenever anybody says the word serious, all the sirens go off, everybody freezes, and whoever said the word serious has to put on the attire and be photographed. And then we press on with our serious business. But I don't say that, because I know better. I'd say our important things to do or something of this ilk. And if you think you can get a bunch of epidemiologists together, they can say one sentence without saying serious. So our meetings were always working on building a hospital. How do we raise money for this? And how do we get doctors to fly to the Himalayas to do a survey? What are we going to do in Guatemala? All those issues. But if you said the word serious, you stopped. It was like Groucho Marx in the old days. Say the secret word and a duck would come down. Everything stopped and you had to wear the funny glasses and have a picture taken. This was Wavy's ability to infuse in the most serious issues that levity. And, and when he was asked, what's so important about humor that you have to interrupt our, he would always say, laughter is like the valve on the pressure cooker. If you don't have an outlet, you will wind up with your beans on the ceiling. Yeah, he has weaponized humor, but that's been true. <laughs> I never told a joke in my life. Oh, what the chicken say when it laid the square egg? Said, ouch, that hurt my butt. That's it. That's joke. <laughs> Here's my one joke. What did zero say to eight? Uh, I don't know. I know seven, eight, nine. That's a good one. Zero said to eight, nice belt. Oh, nice belt. Yes. And I'd like a, a belt of something right now. <laughs> I like that where words mean several things. A belt of cloth or a belt of booze. The belts of uh, science around the planet. St. Andreas belt. Orion's belt? Orion, yes, that's what I was trying to think of. <laughs> is, is Orion Irish? I think the most important takeaway for me, I mean, Wavy and I have been best friends for 40 years now. He is truly extraordinary. I've never heard him say an unkind thing. He's found a way to make jokes and to make jokes about people without making jokes about them. His jokes are uplifting. His humor is inspiring. I've never heard him ridicule anyone. I've never heard him lie. I've never heard him do anything unkind. And when he was younger, he was able to stop time and expand it. And within that expanded time, find a place where we could all live in peace and quiet and love. And I wish that the world had so many more people like Wavy Gravy. Hi. Hi. So Wavy really loves you a lot. Well, listener, we've reached the end of episode 11. And after two years of pod production, Wavy finally agreed to share his ultimate secret with me, his hated childhood nickname. Here's the spontaneous phone call which led to the reveal with me, Jahanara, and Wavy in spring of 2022. Kicking and screaming against, but under duress, full of not wanting to do it, he is willing to give you his secret name that he hates and detests. Ugh, I'm so honored. And he says it'll probably be good for it. He still hates and detests it. I think you should ask him yourself. Okay. Let's do it. He's in the next room. Great. This is Cecily. Can I ask you the question? Yeah. Hi, Wavy. Hi, Cecily. How are you? I'm semi-spectacular, like always. 
Okay, I just love you so much, and I can't wait to find out what your nickname was when you were a child. Oh, you mean Nubby. Nubby? Oh my god, that's so cute. Yes, I despised it later in my uh, growth as a person, as a young man and stuff. Oh god, if anybody ever found out, I'd be doomed. It is going to be broadcast worldwide now. Yeah, but I don't care because I'm a, a mature adult. They can call me anything they want except late for dinner. So you're saying I can publish this and tell everyone your your adorable nickname is Nubby? Yeah, it's, and my mom named it. It's, she had a, she knitted, and there was a brand of wool called Nubby, and she named me after this brand of wool I discovered later in life. I just wondered where it even came from, and I ran from it in horror and hoped that nobody ever found out. It is the most adorable nickname I've ever heard, Nubby. Yeah, except when you if you inhabit it, then you get older. You don't want anybody to know. Right, right. If you're being a cool beatnik poet at the gaslight. Right. <laughs> Anything but nubby. <laughs> but if you're an octogenarian, it's so cozy and you're like in a cozy sweater. If you think so, but I'd, I'd rather not. <laughs> well, I'm honored that you would share that your nickname is Nubby. And I'm sure all your fans will be thrilled to hear your nickname is Nubby. They will, huh? <laughs> okay, and can I rise above it? I guess. <laughs> Just as I can, so I guess I can. Okay, honey, you got everything. <laughs> I got every. I love you. Have a. I won't call you Nubby. The beans have been spilled. <laughs> Please don't. If you gave me a warning, <laughs> it's gonna be revealed now. So. Well, but nobody needs to know. It's I'm horrified. If they want to get me, it's a good one to the, or get a skywriter. That's what it would take a skywriter. That would be the end of it, though. <laughs> oh my god, that shall not happen. No skywriting of Nubby. All right. <laughs> okay, I learned so much and connected so many dots throughout this production, like how all these hippies I grew up with knew each other, and why my counterculture elders are famous in some circles, and what historic impact their youthful dissidents had on the entire world. And here's why I spent two years making this, just because I want you and everyone to know who Wavy is. Wavy stands for and exemplifies basic human needs, big fun, and the spirit of the psychedelic revolution, which includes all the cliché hippie words, sustainability, oneness with nature, compassion for all living beings, receptivity to wonder and the cosmic mystery, and robed in his massive comedic wink of absurdism, joy, and good times. There are so many podcasts about terrible people, dictators, murderers, fraudsters, and yes, their psychology is fascinating, but so is the psychology of people like Wavy Gravy, relentlessly doing something good for a change. Wavy reminds us we can party hard and do the hard work of making the world a better place for others. And that is more important than terrible things. As I used to say about the great Lord Buckley, We talked about Lord Buckley in episode 5. He was the American stand-up comedian who Wavy and Jaw honored at their first public event that was rained out in L.A. Bob Dylan wrote, Lord Buckley was the hipster bebop preacher who defied all labels. Sounds like Wavy. The great Lord Buckley, yes. The flowers, yes, the flowers. But the people are the true flowers. And it has been a pleasure to have momentarily strolled in your garden. 
Wow. Wow. That's a double wow. Yeah. That's a perfect place to wrap for the day. Park it. (laughs) What happened after the 1980s? Wavy and the Hog Farm still own and live on collective property in Berkeley and Laytonville, California. Seva and Camp Winter Rainbow are still going strong. And Wavy has continued his pursuits of activism, showbiz, comedy, and big fun. As of this recording, Wavy and Jahanara, both in their 80s, have overcome serious health challenges and live with first, second, and third generation Hog Farm family members. For even more on Wavy, check out the awesome documentary film Saint Misbehaving. And I'll be putting out bonus episodes because there is so much more I couldn't fit into this 11-hour series. So subscribe to stay tuned. Well, thank you for letting me stroll in your garden. You betcha, Red Rider. I'll see you later. It's a deal. If you enjoyed American Prankster, you'll probably enjoy my other podcasts about more branches of our counterculture family tree. The Best Day of My Life, Patch Adams' Journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination and Disorganized Crime Smuggler's Daughter. Plus, check out RainbowValentine.com for links to my social media and updates on new projects. Thanks for taking the time to walk in our garden here at Rainbow Valentine Studios which is kind of also known as my house and closet. American Prankster is executive produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios, Eric Hober, Larry and Gertrude Brilliant, God and Company, Thessaly Lerner, Rainbow Valentine, and Wavy Gravy, and sponsored by Levy Informatics at levyinformatics.com. Episode 11, written, edited, produced, and scored by Thessaly Lerner, with original music by Will Collins, Hope for a Golden Summer, Gabby Lala, Paul Holman, and The Ukulele, mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher, narrated by Rainbow Valentine, which you probably know by now is an alias for me, Thessaly Lerner, also known as The Ukulele. Like Wavy, I have many names and wear many hats. Associate producers are Sage Lean, Ryan Reeves, Trina Calderon, Zappo Dickinson, Jundid Sykes, Jahanara Romney, and Mark Margolis. Logo by Jordan Paisano. Special thanks to our episode 11 guests, Hog Farmers, Talia Sykes, Casper Vandermeer, Jahanara, and Jordan Romney, and Larry Brilliant. Plus appreciation to all the Do-Re-Mi budget donors, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listener, plus the incomparable Wavy Gravy. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil and towards the fun! ha <laughs> OMG, we did it. Share it with a friend, review it, let's spread the word. Less ruthless, greedy dictators. More peace, love, and rock and roll with critical thinking artist comedy people. Interested in peace. You, you two, two, ten, ten minutes. the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie 
Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.